Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Last First Date Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 371 with Jill Elaine Hasday, Intimate Lies, Deception, and the Law. Hello, everybody. This is Sandy, and welcome to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late for love and that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect and rewards that she deserves in life and in love. What is a woman of value? She is somebody who shows up, stands up, and speaks up for her value. She knows who she is. She knows what she stands for, and she knows how to set boundaries. I'm in the middle of, like, Boundary, 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 everything, because we're launching our boundary course uh, at the end of September. The first module drops, so we have a webinar today and and Thursday on how to set healthy boundaries. And if you, I don't even know if I can share the link here somewhere, maybe I'll do that by the end of the show, but uh, sign up, it's free. Uh, You can even go to my website and, and find stuff on boundaries, but we are just so passionate about that. And so every week I bring you a tip on how to become a woman of value. This week's tip is to be a lifetime learner. I think that a lot of people as they grow older think that they're kind of done. They're just, if they know everything they need to know and, and they're not going to really grow and change. And I believe that to really own your value, you need to keep growing, learning, and adapt the more, a more growth mindset than a fixed mindset. So that means take courses do fun things, travel, learn, 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 because that makes you interesting and and a person that people want to get to know. And so that's my challenge for you today is to take on something that helps you to be a lifetime learner. Before I bring on my guest, I want to remind anybody who's not yet a member of my free Facebook group to please join us. It's called Your Last First Date on Facebook. Don't forget the your. And it's for women over 40 who are tired of Facebook groups and forums that just uh, have a whole lot of uh, venting and complaining. We don't allow that in my group. This is really to help you grow into a woman of value who attracts her best partner. So join us at Your Last First Date on Facebook. And now my guest, Jill Elaine Hasday. She is a distinguished McKnight University professor and the Centennial Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. Her work focuses on family law, anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, and legal history. She's a graduate of the Yale Law School and Yale College, and she clerked for Judge Patricia M. Wald of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And we're going to be talking today about deception and intimate relationships. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Love this topic and really enjoyed the conversation we had before we went live. So I want to recapture capture a little bit of that as we, as we talk today. And let's start with, um, well, I, I would really be curious of, as to why this was a topic that became um, as interesting as it is to create a whole book. What was the appeal? Well, one thing I make clear in the dedication to the book is that my own personal experience didn't inspire it. The dedication of the book says, to my loved ones, you didn't inspire me to write this book. 
Um, but uh, basically, I've been a law professor for 20 years and teaching and writing about family law. And occasionally I would come across these cases where a deceptive intimate inflicted just grievous injury and got away with it because courts weren't willing to give remedies for deception within an intimate relationship. And I just thought that was very interesting, and I always kept it in mind as something I wanted to go back to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen so many times when the courts have failed us, and we were talking earlier about how when somebody has a restraining order, how the um, how they don't have legal protection often often it's um, you know they're they're failed by the system. So it's it's really a shame, and hopefully we can shed some light on that today. Um, I mean, what's interesting in the law governing intimate deception is that generally courts start with the premise that the ordinary remedies the law gives you when you're deceived aren't available if you're deceived by an intimate. So someone will sue for fraud or misrepresentation or battery or uh, intentional affliction of emotional distress, and courts will say, yeah, you meet all the criteria uh, a plaintiff ordinarily has to show, but we're not interested in pursuing this claim because you were deceived by an intimate. So somehow it's your fault, or I mean, like, what's, what's it's not, the logic? I mean, it's. I think it's under reasoned. Um, courts either treat it as sort of so obvious and it's common sense, or with so they don't have to explain it, or they kind of loosely throw around the idea of non-intervention. We don't want to intervene in intimate relationships. Um, one of the arguments that I make in my book, Intimate Lies in the Law, is that actually courts. It's inevitable that the law will intervene. The court is always setting the ground rules for intimacy, deciding who counts as an intimate, what counts as acceptable and not. It's just that usually courts now do it in a way that protect deceivers rather than helping the people who are deceived. Mm. So t- tell us more about that. How does that work? Well, okay, so for instance, um, when I started this project, I thought that courts would deny remedies just because they thought intimate deception wasn't important enough to be kind of worth their time. But in fact, judges often say that it's crucially important to regulate intimate deception in the right way, but the right way they think is to preserve deceit. In fact, some judges will go so far as to say, you know, the future of heterosexual mating would be destroyed if we prevented men from uh, deceiving women. Um, and they are very intent on protecting what they see as ordinary deception. But what courts define as ordinary deception can be quite dramatic. So um, hiding that you already have two children from a previous relationship, ordinary deception, no remedy. Hiding that you have a disability that prevents you from working full-time, ordinary deception, no remedy. Uh, Faking a pregnancy even after the man's wife becomes so distraught she kills herself, ordinary deception, no remedy. Wow. Right, it's very, it's wow. very strong. You know, it's, there's, if you're looking for um, a thousand stories that you can't believe, that my book has them. When I started the book, I would be when I started working on the book, I would be very surprised all the time. I've had a very smooth personal life, so I would look at a, I would read a case and I would think that person had a secret second family. How do they even manage the logistics? But now right. I'm not saying that everyone has a secret second family, but it's just much more common than you think. These profound deceptions are just much more common, and people haven't focused on it as this just persistent and pervasive area of life and source of injury. Wow. 
So I know like in a lot of marriages, one of the spouses might be hiding money in the Cayman Islands. You know, that that kind of thing used to happen a lot. So if a marriage ends, they can't claim the money because it's hidden. Um, is, is that something that can be protected at this well, point? I mean, what's interesting is, Okay, so in general, the law usually cares the most about financial harms because they're the easiest kind of for judges to understand and they kind of come with a dollar value attached. But when you talk about financial deception in marriage, courts are much more reluctant to provide relief. So if you have decided to get divorced and then you say, okay, I'm going to empty out the bank account or I'm going to funnel the money to the Caymans, courts will give you a remedy if they can find it. I mean, they have to know it exists. But if you funneled it out of the marriage knowing that you're, we're getting divorced, I'm going to hide the money, courts will give you a remedy. But if you deceive someone in a way that siphoned funds to yourself when the marriage was still ongoing, many courts are very reluctant to provide a remedy. So I have one case, man and woman in Virginia, uh, he runs a construction company. If they had gotten divorced, it would count as a marital asset. She would have a claim to half the value. But they briefly separate. During that time, he decides to sell the company to his father for a sweetheart price, and he doesn't actually even demand cash. It's just a promissory note. He doesn't tell his wife. They get back together. A few years later, they divorce. She finds out, you know, he sold the construction company away from me. She goes to court. She says, this should count as a marital asset. He shouldn't be able to have hidden it from me. The court says, no, that was an ongoing marriage. What happens in an ongoing marriage, we're not going to look at. Okay, so one point you could make is, why is the marriage ongoing? Because she didn't know he had sold the construction company away from her. right? If she had known, right. she might have said, now's the time I want a divorce. Yeah. Um, so I found, that very, I found that very striking in that, I'm not saying every court, but many more courts than you would think, if it's financial deception in a marriage, they're not willing to give a, to give a remedy. And many um, of them, so I think the deception that comes to mind for most people is like adultery. Adultery is often paired with financial deception. Affairs are very expensive. Or he's funneling mm -hmm. money to his girlfriend. So, you know, it's very expensive. Courts are not willing to provide uh, redress for that if it's an ongoing marriage. And they're not sympathetic to the argument that it was only ongoing because he was deceiving me. <laughs> if I had known the truth, you know, I would have gotten divorced. Yeah, Wow. So it's a, it's a real catch-22. Right, right, right. I mean, I'm not saying if you're in this situation, you know, you should still make the argument that you should get a remedy, but you're not necessarily going to win. So what's, I mean, are there courts that are better than other courts? Like I know in terms of crime, there are some courts that are harsher than others. And um, it, what, are there I mean, like places? Where, you know, there, locations there are individual there are individual cases that I, are better, but I wasn't able to find you know some regional variation or one state that's systematically better. You know, you'll get the occasional judge, but um, in general, courts are very hostile to giving remedies for intimate deception, with a few exceptions that they consider extraordinary. So, um, if courts consider uh, deception ordinary. They're inclined not to provide redress, but some deception they'll consider extraordinary. So uh, getting someone to sleep with you by pretending to be unmarried, that's ordinary. Courts won't give a remedy. But actually getting married again, in other words, committing bigamy, okay, there you have something. Bigamy is a crime, and they'll also give you civil, um, civil damages. 
Um, mm-hmm. Or if a court is convinced that someone is a con artist rather than just a deceptive intimate, which is a very hard line because con artists lie for a living, deceptive intimates could live by telling lies. But if the court is convinced that this person really is a professional con artist, so they were mainly interested in draining your bank account, they will provide remedies. Um, so, but it has to yeah. but I'm sorry, just when courts provide remedies, they always stress, like, this is not ordinary. This is something unusual. This is a criminal. Mm-hmm. So it has to be like an out-and-out criminal, and they have to identify it as such. Right, right. A lot of our listeners are not married. They're in, they could be in romantic partnerships, either through like an online dating kind of situation where sometimes people get scammed. And I know this this is a big thing that happens with people who are more vulnerable. Um, A lot of times widows will get scammed out of money. Uh, What's the reparation for those kinds of situations today? Okay. So the FBI generally would call that a romance scam. It takes Mm -hmm. a variety of forms. Sometimes you pretend to be someone's friend, sometimes romantic. In those cases, the law considers those people criminals. So the obstacle isn't the law won't give you a remedy. It's finding them. Generally, they're outside mm. the United States. They're untraceable. So they're, everyone admits that that's a crime. You don't have a problem of getting the law on your side. It's just getting an effective remedy. So, for instance, some people have tried to get um, the dating services to do a better job of blocking that, and there's a controversy of whether they really have done as good a job as you can. I mean, one tip I can give people is if you have not met someone, you should not be sending them money. Yeah. You should not be doing bank transfers for them, right? There's no reason to give them your credit card number. These romance scams tend to take a similar pattern where, you know, it starts with promises, travel together, everything's going to be great, and then it turns to I'm having some emergency, I need a cash infusion. And the Mm -hmm. damages can quickly escalate. I mean, people lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, I know. Um, the legal system considers that a crime. It's just finding the people. Generally, the money is gone. Yeah. Um, but another variety of um, deception that the law is less interested in is what if someone presents themselves as, as unmarried and they're married, right? So yeah. some women have attempted to sue for battery. Basically, I wouldn't have had sex with you if you hadn't lied to me. And courts don't dispute the facts, but they just say we're not giving you a remedy for that. That's ordinary deception. Um, people are a lot more open about that these days, by the way. And you go on sites like Tinder, and they'll say, "I'm being, I'm not showing my picture because I am married. My marriage isn't good, and I'm looking for somebody to sleep with." They're pretty out there. Not every. All I want to say is, not everyone, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, you can be deceived, but I think that the more, you can become more savvy, but anybody can be deceived. And we talked a little bit about that before the show, that I have a a colleague who's quite, quite smart about deception and and psychopaths and women being battered, and she fell for a romance scammer. And one one of the typical ways that a lot of these people get in, and this is a fairly new thing probably in the last two years, is somebody will send an email on one of the dating sites saying, I found my love of my life here, and I have a friend who saw your profile. Like, I'm going to get off lying, but I have a friend who saw your profile and thought it was amazing and would really like to talk to you. 
And so can you, you know, write him at this email? So right away they're getting you off the dating site, and then they lure you into all this love bombing of, you're amazing, you're the perfect person for me, and a lot of people fall for that. So have you come across that one? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts. First, I love the term love bombing, <laughs> which I had not heard before. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so one of the messages of the book is that if you've been deceived, you're not alone, it's not your fault. Courts and just people like to blame people for being deceived. And, of course, first, events tend to look more obvious in retrospect. Now that we know he's a crook, you should have known. Also, psychologically, it's very comforting to think that only the particularly stupid and gullible fall for it. Because, of course, we're all smart and savvy. We would never fall for it. Mm -hmm. In fact, the evidence suggests that detecting deception is very difficult, especially from an intimate who you trust, who's telling you exactly what you want to hear. There's also strong social norms that urge us to trust our intimates and not investigate them. And investigating is very hard to do without the person spotting it. You know, you go through someone's garbage, they may spot you. That could end the relationship. You go through someone's credit cards, emails, or computer, you're violating the law. There's laws against that, and for good reason. People who have tried that have ended up in jail themselves. Um, so I, I don't want to blame people for being deceived. I think one of the proposals in my book is, in addition to wanting to give people who sue more remedies if they're deceived, I also think the law should try to help prevent deception before it starts. So it should look for ways to facilitate investigation when there can be that can be done without jeopardizing privacy or security. But I don't think people should be. Um, I don't. You know. I don't want. I don't want to blame people. Uh, but I yeah. also think that yes, if you've met someone on an internet dating site and they are urging you to get off immediately, that's not a good strategy. Um, I mean, I can give general tips uh, if someone is claiming to be a CIA agent or a Navy SEAL. Just be suspicious. Probably more men have claimed to be a Navy SEAL in any one year than ever served in the Navy SEALs. Um, deceivers love to claim jobs like intelligence or military intelligence or CIA because CIA, it kind of gives them an, or pilot. It gives them an excuse to be away for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Real CIA oil agents don't like to talk about being in the CIA, right? You know, yeah. If you're claiming yeah. on the first date you work for the CIA, you get fired from the CIA for acting like that. You don't, you know. Right. I'm not blaming anyone. <laughs> I'm just saying, listen to your instincts. Um, yeah. Because another thing that happens to people is they're swept. They're swept up in it, and then later they begin to have doubts and things don't seem consistent. But one thing deceivers often count on is you kind of get trapped. You know, maybe you've had a child with someone you're uh, emotionally and economically interdependent, it can be hard to leave, right? The time to really scrutinize is early, but it's hard. We're not in a culture where it's normal to hire a private detective. And I'm not saying, I don't think that's nece- that is necessarily would be a good development. I mean, it would be horrible if someone tells you they love you and your first thought is, oh, I need to investigate this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that's not a good way to yeah. live. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, I think someone could very plausibly read my book and conclude at the end, I'm no longer going to abide by social norms against investigating. You know, better safe than mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, it's a real balance because I find that a lot of people, once they start looking at stuff like this, they think everybody is, is um, you know, out to get them. And I've seen posts in my Facebook group where somebody will say, um, hi, how long have you been on this site? And they immediately think it's a scammer. You know, it's like, yes, a lot of right, scammers will start that way. <laughs> right. Well, but, you actually, know, that was, 
the common thing. There's a, yeah. a one of the so in the book I not only talk about cases but I have a whole part that's on just the social phenomenon of intimate deception and I talk about a lot of memoirs from deceived intimates. So one of the memoirs I talk about is this man who discovers that his wife was hiding an affair for several years. And like many people in the situation, he reports that actually what hurt him most was the deception rather than the infidelity itself. And mm-hmm. so he says at the end, he says, you know, on the one hand, I feel like I have a more realistic sense of how easy it is to be deceived. On the other hand, if I can't trust, how will I ever have a relationship again? And I really think that right. is, a, he really put his finger on a dilemma, which is, I hope the message of the book is not you can't trust people because intimacy is this great, can be this great thing. I think social norms that urge us to trust our intimates make sense in many contexts, right? They promote social bonds and cooperation and love and childcare and all these things. It's just that they can make it harder for someone, they can make it easier for someone to deceive you and harder to find it. Yeah, and I think for me what I try to convey is that someone has to earn your trust. It's not an immediate thing. And just because somebody says they love you, I I got off the phone with somebody this morning who was looking into hiring me as a coach, and there were so many signs that this person she was dating was the wrong person. And she was chemically attracted, and so she couldn't think straight. And he told her about his history. He told her things that she... Her instinct said there's something off here. This guy isn't taking any responsibility for any of his past relationships and blaming the woman for everything. Now, to me, that would be a huge red flag. I'd be out of there in a minute. But, you know, it's, it comes with time and practice, too. Like the scammer who tried to scam me, I saw inconsistencies within a day. I saw how his lies were starting to add up um, because I was paying attention. And he texted me really late at night one night, and that was a big red flag. So who knows where he was? I don't give out my real phone number anymore. I give out a Google Voice number, so I'm protected. And, you know, there are ways to protect yourself and there are ways to learn the signs of romance scammers and the signs of people who deceive. You know, because almost all the time, even that man you were talking about whose wife was cheating on him, there were probably a lot of signs that he didn't want to see, that he saw and dismissed. Right. I mean, I don't want to blame people because, um, of course, we trust each other, and deceivers often take it, um, advantage of that trust. You know, and most people, they're not tracking their intimates on a minute-by-minute basis and actually would mm-hmm. find it quite annoying if they yeah, were being tracked creepy. on a minute-by-minute basis. <laughs> right, right, minute-by-minute basis. So, And in retrospect, I think it often is easier to say, but at the same time, if your spidey sense is telling you something is off, don't push that to the side. Intimate mm-hmm. deception is a phenomenon. People can deceive you, and it's something to be um, alert to. Some women, it's interesting, so another woman I talk about in the book, she had been deceived twice. She met uh, two men who presented themselves as unmarried when they were actually married. And her new policy was, unless I meet your family, your friends, your colleagues in the first few weeks, I'm not wasting my time. Uh-huh. And I think there's nothing wrong with that strategy. I'm just saying it's hard to pursue that strategy in the sense of you have to find someone who's willing to let you into that much of their life in the early days. And you yes. can see why someone might have a legitimate, you know, I don't want I don't want to introduce my boss. We just started. We had two dates, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm not. I, I I agree. Everyone should, if there's inconsistencies, one um, uh, self-help book I talk about in my book said, 
think of yourself as a reporter asking who, what, why, where questions, not because you're nosy, but just because you want to find out more. And I think that's a perfectly good mindset to have. You know, this is a new person. Let me just find out things about them. You know, let's give them yeah. an opportunity to tell things. Does it, is the story they're telling me make sense? Have I ever seen their home? Have I ever met anyone who knows them? I mean, there's definitely things um, to be thinking about. Um, but if you are someone who has been deceived, I don't think you should – the message I'm not I'm not trying to give you the message of oh if only you had been smarter and paid more attention. Yeah, so I I'm, I want to stress also that I'm not a blamer, um, and I agree with with the fact that we do we do what we can with the tools we have. The point is to learn and grow from each experience. So if you have been deceived, doesn't mean you can't trust anybody in the future. It means learn from your experience and apply what you learn so that you can pick up on signs quicker and you can act on them quicker. Oh, I, I, agree, with, I agree with that totally. Yeah. yeah no, and I, I, and I, don't, I don't think you were blaming them. I just want to make that point of, yeah. because I think, I think we, we as a culture, um, our first instinct, and you see this on the court and off, our first instinct is to say the problem is the deceived person. They mm-hmm. should have protected themselves. And one thing that's interesting is, in general, the law has moved away from that. So in the business context, we used to have the rule of caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. That is not the rule anymore. You sell people defective products, they can sue you, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. They should have investigated more closely. So we still have this idea that the person who was injured has the burden of protecting themselves in this context, but we just the law has moved away from that elsewhere. Hmm. Yeah. So what can someone do if they feel that they're a victim of deception, let's say, um, you know, whether it's financial or sometimes people will come in and, and try to lure somebody in because they want government benefits, legal, you know, immigration, you talk about that. What can they do? Well, okay, so it depends on the arena. I have in my book, I have sort of a variety of different kinds of deception, one I call linchpin deception. They've deceived you because otherwise they can't have the relationship. Another one you just alluded to is gateway deception. They've deceived you because it's access to government benefits that turn on being married, like being duped into marriage. Um, I don't want to provide legal advice to anyone. You should ask um, uh, a lawyer. Um, it, it could be it could be quite um, uh, difficult to get uh, um, uh, redressed, but you should certainly... The first, I guess the first thing I personally would do is I would assess the situation and think, what can I do to protect myself now so at least my injuries will not get greater? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if, if you have, um, uh, if you feel like someone is deceiving you and they currently have access to your bank account, now is the time to shut that off. If yeah. you have a joint credit card account with someone who, so there's another form of deception where you know one spouse will run up tons of credit card that the other one doesn't know about. Often spouses have been held liable for someone else's credit card debt. That's now's the time to cut off that credit card, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that would be my first step is to try to stop um, the damage. Yeah, further damage. Yeah. Um, that's smart. I mean, I do that with my children. You're abusing right. and my also, credit card, you don't get it. <laughs> right, right, right. And also just document, and I think also document everything uh you can, right? Get all the paperwork mm. you can. Because, for instance, in divorce, you're going to need to document all. If you're making a claim of someone siphoning the cash, you just have as much documentation as you can show. And I think that's excellent advice for anybody 
who's in a relationship, um, when they're sharing assets or they're sharing, it's like a business relationship. And it becomes a problem if you split because if people who don't keep good records and who just trust implicitly often end up in, in tremendous um, financial debt um, because they're not getting their due you know their due diligence and their share in in the finances. oh yeah I mean a general a general tip is be careful who you commingle your money with because in general mm-hmm. the law says that once your money is all jumbled together it's your shared money and they're not getting into who put what in in so you just have to be very cautious about that yeah whether yeah. it's a deception context or anything you know right I mean and so that that's like boundaries and protecting what's yours, and it doesn't have to be an emotional issue. I mean, I think that if you really look at it in a way that's, this is mine, this is yours, let's let's talk about how we're going to divide assets or keep our assets, you know, combine assets, keep them separate. Um, it doesn't have to become the, fin- the emotional issue that it, that it often becomes. Um, so let's, as we close, I have one last question for you, Jill. Um, what advice do you have for our listeners who um, who might, you know, just have have listened to this and they're freaking out right now? <laughs> what are some final words of advice you can give them? Um, intimate deception is unfortunately a pretty pervasive area of life. If this has happened to you, you're just you're not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I'm not saying it's not hard. It can be devastating, but you're not alone. You're not the only one. Having it happen to you doesn't mean you are particularly stupid. It could happen. I, it literally could happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an important reminder. And I think that often the self-beat-up comes before actually feeling like you did the best you could. Now, Now let's go to the next step. Um, this is a very interesting conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show, Jill. And uh, tell our audience how they can find you and your book. Okay, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm Jill Hasday. My book's name is Intimate Lies in the Law. It's available wherever books are sold. I also have a website, jillhasday.com. That's J-I-L-L-H-A-S as in Sam, D as in David, A-Y.com. And I'm on Twitter at Jill Hasday. All right. Newly Twittered. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, I just joined we'll Twitter. Put all of that. Yeah. So you can see everything that Donald Trump posts. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for helping our audience learn what what their rights are and how to how to really better protect themselves because and to not beat themselves up for if they've had deception. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for being for coming to the show today, for listening. And if you love our show, please rate us and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, go to my website, lastfirstdate.com, to see the show notes for all of these shows. And I hope, I hope that you go on your last first date very soon. Have a great day. Bye.